Our scripture reading from tonight is from Psalm 106, verses 32 to 48. So beginning reading with Psalm 106, 32. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the people as the Lord commanded them, but mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord God, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are aware that there are so many different hearts watching those pictures. So many different hearts feeling what might have been. Singles feeling what might have been. Those who can't conceive feeling what might have been. Those who lost their babies feeling what might have been. So we're not unaware, Lord, that Sanctity of Life Sunday is a painful Sunday. Abortion is a horrible and painful thing, and just to draw attention to babies is painful, let alone the killing of babies. Then there are people in these three services, these three campuses right now, who've had abortions. They're boyfriends who've pressured for abortions and husbands and grandparents who've pressured for abortions. And they don't want to hear what I have to say. Or they do and they don't. So, Father, I pray that you would come now and do this amazing work. This psalm is not one thing. It is many things, because there are many ears and many hearts here. Help me to be faithful to the psalm. And then you do the many works that need to be done. I pray through Christ. Amen. 
Psalm 106 is a summary of the history of Israel with a focus on her sins, her repeated sins, and God's anger, and the judgment, and the cry for mercy, and the deliverance, and the praise, and then more sin, and then more anger, and then more judgment, and then more cries for mercy, and then more deliverance, and more praise, and, and then some more sin. And Have you ever read the Old Testament? It's awful! If you stop at the end of the Old Testament, it's not finished. It just pleads for more. You come to the end of this Psalm 47 and 48. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. We heard that before. Can just hear. We heard that before. Followed by sin. Again and again and again and again in the Old Testament. Pictures of ourselves. <laughs> One of the women praying downstairs before the service. When we referred to sin in one of the prayers, she she whispered, thank you for being the God of the second chance. And I whispered, third, fourth, 490th. He did save them over and over again. So the, the end of this psalm seems to me to be like the end of the Old Testament Psalm sums up the Old Testament, walking us through a good hunk of it, showing how they failed again and again, and God was merciful again and again. Which is why there's a New Testament. If you just took the Old Testament, no Messiah yet. Failure, mercy, failure, mercy, Will this just go on, this cycle of failure, just go on forever? Or will there be something decisive in the future? And, and we Christians believe it was Jesus. Jesus was the Messiah. He came, the final, lasting, decisive act of God in salvation came into history with Jesus Christ. He was the final Adam. He was the final prophet like Moses. He was the final expression of Israel. He was the final high priest. He was the final Passover lamb. He was the final manna from heaven. He was the final suffering servant. He was the final son of man. He was, his blood was the final decisive purchase of the new covenant in which things would be written on our heart, not just on stone. And he was the final and decisive yes and amen to all the promises of God. That's the New Testament. That's why we're Christians. 
So whenever I read a, a text in the Old Testament that feels incomplete, like Psalm 106 does to me, I, I read it as though, and this is the way I do believe God intended to be read, because he could see all this that was coming, I read it as though the incompleteness of it is precisely designed to send me straight to Jesus. That's why the Old Testament feels the way it feels. It's, it's telling us it's not here yet. It's not complete yet. The work's not done yet. The sacrifices aren't enough. The law is not enough. It's all saying, He's coming. He's coming. And we're supposed to be on our tiptoes until He comes. And when He comes, and He did come, then we should read it with tremendous gratitude that what we see in these glorious words of mercy are now here in Jesus. So I don't want you to hear this the way it might have been only heard the first time. I want you to be people who are on the other side of the Messiah and his coming so that, yes, you hear it the way they heard it, full of mercy, full of grace, not knowing how it could possibly be. And now we know. He bought it with his blood. Verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God. Means to them, I think. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Rescue us from captivity now and every other captivity we ever get into. Hasten the day of the coming of the King. Deliver us once from all, from our worst enemies. Make atonement somehow, finally and decisively, not just in these bulls and goats for our sins. Write the law on our hearts that we may fear you forever. Never fall away from you again. I think that's what a true saint meant at the end of this psalm. He knew as things stood right there, not enough. Now we, when we read it, we know how, how that all, the king has come and the law has been written on our hearts and the spirit has come and God is keeping his people for himself and the decisive works of redemption are behind us and the consummation is in front of us with a great certainty. So, let's wave a banner over Psalm 106 with its horrors and its failures that are so relevant to this moment in history. Let's wave the banner of Jesus Christ, final Savior of the world, died for sins, conquered guilt, condemnation, hell, death. Wave that banner high over this psalm. And so when, when you get to the text, Save me, O Lord my God, mean the full meaning of the Lord God, Jesus Christ. Flying over the banner, flying over the text, is a, is a flag that's crimson-colored because the blood of Christ has bought the mercy that's referred to here in this text. And so I'm beginning this message doing two things. I'm trying to say how I read the Old Testament and ask you to read it that way with me, with Jesus as its point. And I'm, I'm trying to offer you mercy before I describe the horrors of abortion.
I'm trying to call for repentance and for hope in your heart before I tell you how bad it is so that you will feel underneath you an amazing, everlasting arm. Let's begin with the bigger picture of the text, just the text, not the whole psalm, the part that Mike read. Let's begin with the bigger picture and then look at the the details. The bigger picture is a list of sins, anger from God and judgment, cry for salvation and mercy. That's the, that's the big picture. Let's look at it. The sins, first of all. Verse 32. At Meribah, I don't know if you remember that story from Numbers 20. At Meribah, they had come out of Egypt and there was no water. You got hundreds of thousands of people and no water in the wilderness. And they're very angry at Moses. And Moses is, is so distressed by their criticism, he disobeys God and strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. And God gets very angry at Moses and says, Why did you not sanctify me before the people by believing in me? And he didn't. So that's what he's referring to here. They murmured against Moses. Second, verse 34. The Israelites did not destroy the peoples of Canaan as God had commanded them. This means that God's anger at the killing of babies is not owing to a sentimental or romantic opposition to killing. Because he said, I'm really mad that you didn't kill them all. Why did he order them all to be killed? He had said 400 years earlier, I'm sending you to Egypt until the sins of the Amorites are complete. It's going to take four centuries to get their sins complete. Now they're coming back into the land, and this is crystal clear, Deuteronomy 9.4, why God sentenced the land of Canaan to be destroyed. This is Deuteronomy 9.4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it was my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. In other words, in that period of redemptive history, God was pleased to so relate to his people that he made them the instrument of his judgment in the world, which he does not do today. That must be said so clear in the volatile situation in which we live with Islam, for example. This assignment of God for his people to be the instrument of his judgment on a wicked people who for centuries upon centuries upon centuries had piled their sins as high as the Tower of Babel, that way of relating to his people in the world 
underwent a dramatic, fundamental change with the arrival of Jesus Christ in the world. And one of the clearest texts that shows that is where Jesus said in John 18.36 to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. That is an epoch-making text for me and the way I understand the church, the kingdom, and my relationship to violence in the spread of the kingdom. Namely, you don't use it. So don't go to Numbers 20 or to Psalm 106 and say, See, Christians should spread the kingdom just like the Old Testament people of God did using that kind of terror in Canaan. It isn't so. God has a right to do it that way. He's not doing it that way anymore. There are hundreds of texts that could make it plain to the extent that we are to die for the spread of this kingdom, not kill for the spread of this kingdom. However, the only reason I'm pointing this out is because it's here and it stands in such stark contrast to his anger at the killing of these innocent babies by their parents, your sons and your daughters. That was sin number two. Sin number three, verse 35. They mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. He had told them, don't intermarry with the nations. Now the point there, and I'm harking back to last year's sermon on Martin Luther King Sunday, the point there was not that interracial or interethnic or international marriages are wrong. I emphatically believe they are not sin. But they are right, and I argue for it in that message, and you can go to the line online and get it. What was wrong was the second half of the verse. They mixed with the nations, and they learned to do as they did, and that's why he didn't want them to marry pagans. And to this day, he doesn't want you to marry a pagan. That is an unbelieving person, just like you. Marry a person totally different from you in every way but this, they believe in Jesus. And you will survive. But don't ever marry an unbeliever. Ever. If you're married to one, stay married. That's the will of God. And God will use you. But that's the application there. They mixed with the nations, which meant they forsook their distinct commitment to Yahweh. And they just folded right into the pagan culture. Verse 36 describes a general way that this brought the people down. And then verses 37 following do something else. Look at verse 36. They served their idols which became a snare to them. So the overarching reason for why you shouldn't mix with unbelievers is because it draws one into idolatry. That's what he warned against. And the idols become a snare, which means 
when you get trapped in a snare, you get eaten by the family. You, sna- you, you trap a bear, you kill it. You trap a bird, you kill it. You trap a deer, you kill it. That's what the snare means. It takes you to destruction. Then verses 37 to 39 give the specific behavior that the idolatry led to. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. Now, I don't need to point it out, but I will. That's strong language. That's God's language. He's very angry. Verses 40 and 41. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hands of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. So idolatry led to a snare. The snare took the form of sacrificing their own children in religious rituals. And this he regarded as a whore-like behavior. And his anger was kindled and judgment fell. And they were sold among the nations. Now I think we need to hear the we, he, we need to hear the horror of this language. Because if we don't hear the horror of this language, what's coming in verse 44 will pass over us like a breeze instead of sounding like a thunderclap of hope. Sacrifice, demons, innocent blood, polluted, whore, anger of the Lord abhorred his heritage. Those are words which if I just chose to use them on any given Sunday would would feel like I was playing on your emotions or something like that. So I just say them carefully, say them slowly so that you feel the words that the inspired writer chose to describe what's going on in Israel. Now... The most amazing thing in this psalm, mark this, I do believe this with all my heart, the most amazing thing in this psalm is not that parents are sacrificing their children to demons. The most amazing thing is verse 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. It's not an accident that we said that we sang Amazing Grace. I didn't ask Chuck to sing it. We just sang it. And we'll sing it again. Because that's the main point of this song. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. that saved a baby killer like me. A child sacrificer like me. A whore like me. An abhorred one like me. That's amazing. Is it not amazing? 
to use the worst language possible and to follow it with his abundant love constrained his heart to save them. That's amazing. So, just like the psalmist looked upon child sacrifice full in the face, full in the face, can't talk about that, full in the face, that's part of our history, so we need to look abortion full in the face. We need the raw facts. Just as raw as these words, we need words. We need to watch the videos over at abort73.com. Abort73.com. We need to see the beautiful pictures. And you see a little foot pushing out of his mommy's tongue. Tinyearl.com, Y-W-C-R-Z-B. Nobody's going to remember that. I'll put it on the blog. We need statistics. 40, 50 million since 1973 babies killed in this country, unborn. Just in our country. Just in our country. Not the 50 million a year that go down around the world. 90% of the abortion clinics in urban centers so that 56% of all abortions are black and Hispanic. A kind of ethnic cleansing that pro-choice people cannot dare to think about. We need to know the procedures, suction, aspiration, dilation and curatage, saline abortion, intact dilation and extraction, intrauterine cranial decompression, RU486. You need to know those, those words. You need to see those words. The psalm is raw. The psalm is raw. It was pre-photography and pre-video. There were no such thing as photography. And there was no such thing as video. Sometimes you need raw words when that's all you've got, and sometimes you need raw footage if it's available. It's because you can't comprehend it. You just can't believe they're going to do this. They're not doing it. You can't believe it, and people don't believe it in America. They won't believe it. I, I read a few years ago one of the most impressive things in the Star Tribune, they said, if we could make all Americans watch a live execution in the electric chair, capital punishment would disappear overnight. That's what they said. 
I don't know if that's true or not. But I do know this. It's just as likely that if we could make every American citizen watch a doctor pull a little arm, snap it off, and pull it out, and little leg and snap it off, and pull it out, and put it here like cotton being taken out of your mouth by the dentist to make sure he's got the head, the torso, the leg, and the arm. If we could make every American watch it and mark it, virtually all abortions are done on fetuses that old. There was a little book produced for high schoolers in this city a few years ago, and I didn't save it. And it told them all about abortion, and it recommended how far along they should be when they come in. Don't come too early. Don't come before seven weeks. Okay. Women don't know they're pregnant for one or two months. All these babies have arms and legs. They're never a blob of tissue. So I'm saying 98% of the abortions, if we could just watch them, then it's just as likely that abortion would become as unthinkable in America as slavery is unthinkable in America, which is the goal, not just laws. So what we need to do is look at verses 37 following and simply draw out a few connections between what's described here and abortion. There are four parallels. Verse 37, number one, it's called sacrifice. They sacrifice their sons and daughters. A sacrifice means you give up something that you ordinarily regard as valuable, like a sheep or a, or a bull and you, you sacrifice it in order to gain something better, like favor from a deity. That's what sacrifice is. Now, almost nobody does abortion in America in order to win the favor of a deity. The religious component of child sacrifice is gone. But the essential meaning remains the same. You give up something that's ordinarily considered valuable in order to get something better. Now, what the better is defines the measure of America's barbarity. That's what the debate is about, whether it's better. Is the gain greater than the loss? That's the debate. Is the gain of abortion greater than the loss of whatever it was? That's the question. The life of the child is being sacrificed for something. And what that something is defines the measure of our heinousness in our sin. And I say that knowing full well the unimaginable difficulty of many unplanned pregnancies.
I've listened to enough stories, watched enough stories to know that it feels impossible. It feels impossible to carry through with this. I know that. So you ask, the loss versus the gain? And you define yourself by that choice. You define yourself. How precious is this child? Number two, this child sacrifice is called the sacrifice of our sons and daughters. Verses 37, verse 37. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters. Now, he could have said they sacrificed their children. He said sons and daughters, which draws attention to two things. Their different sexes and their family. These are not generic human beings. There is a little girl and a little boy. The boy is not a girl and the girl is not a boy. And their family. And you're killing them, he says. You're sacrificing them. Number three. It's called the sacrifice of innocent blood. Verse 38. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters. Innocent blood. This is the difference between the way God viewed the Canaanites and the way he's viewing these. This is not a comment about belief or unbelief in original sin. There's some people who stumble over calling babies innocent. I appreciate that if they're stumbling over it because they believe in Romans 5. That's not the point. The point is that at the horizontal level, in relating to other humans, these babies are innocent. It's, it's, the, it's the simple innocence of a courtroom. We would all use this language. I got, just got an invitation to be a juror. Something courtroom. So you, got to, you go to the courtroom, and, and the question is, is the person innocent? Not did they you know, commit sin in Adam. But did they do anything to deserve what these humans are about to do to them? They didn't put them in jail. That's the issue. And that's the issue here. Among humans, did, mommy and daddy, did I do anything? And the answer to that is, no, you didn't do anything. You, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't be thrown to the demons. They're innocent. That is, they've done nothing that would warrant mommy and daddy doing this. That's number three. God has a right to take and give life anytime he chooses and do no wrong. God owns life. We don't own life. God owns life. He can take any baby he wants. He can take any adult he wants anytime. I drop dead right now. God done you no wrong, done me no wrong. Same way with my wife and daughter sitting right there. If they were to drop dead right now, he would have done me no wrong, done you no wrong. God owns life. He wrongs nobody. We don't own life. And we may not say of ourselves, I give and I take. God gives and God takes and he has every right to do so. He created it. He makes it. He defines it. He determines the day number of our days. Which gives me an occasion here to insert a qualification. It's risky. I'll do it anyway. Don't know what it makes me. If God has already 
been taking the life of the baby in the womb. Through some catastrophic anomaly or mishap. And if it's clear that this baby cannot live outside this womb or this non-womb because of an ectopic pregnancy. And if it's clear that leaving the baby there to follow its course is going to kill the mom, you take the baby. You take it. And in taking it, you don't sin. You don't sin against the baby and you don't sin against God or anybody else. That happened in this church two weeks ago. And I want that family to know I'm standing by them, not against them. I don't know if you all agree with that, but that's where I am on this very difficult issue. Borderline situations make it all the harder. Number four, fourth parallel. Innocent blood sacrificed, and now it says, to demons. That's a rare word in the Old Testament. Really rare. Not in the New Testament, but in the Old. Verse 37. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. They poured out innocent blood, the sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. Think with me for just a moment about the relationship between idols and demons. And you know where I'm going to go maybe to get the insight. Not mine, Paul's. Paul's. Listen to what Paul says about the relationship between idols and demons. This is 1 Corinthians 10, 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. What's he saying? He's saying, idols are nothing. Toss it in the fire. But behind idols, there is a force, there is an evil, stirring up idolatry, calling people away from the living God, deceiving human hearts, and it's demonic. And so when you give into it and worship idols and do all the stuff that they would want to do, it, it makes you offer to demons. The magazine First Things, published two years ago, a statement by Catholics and Protestants on life issues. And I want to read you one short section about demons. The blindness of so many to this moral atrocity has many sources, but is finally to be traced to the seductive ways of evil advanced by Satan. Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. I think that's exactly right. Which means that the sacrifice of our sons and our daughters today is in a very true and a profound sense a sacrifice to demons to Satan. The religious part has gone because this is a secular Western world. And of course, Satan doesn't want 
um, abortion to be laughed at. So, of course, he's not going to make it a religious ritual. He wants me to be laughed at so that he gets the upper hand when I say it's to demons and people smirk. That's what, they, that's what Satan wants. He's real happy f- for the secular world not to believe in him. Real happy. As long as they just keep sacrificing their children to him. It's the sacrificing of the sons and daughters to demons that is the bottom of the sin in this text. We should be, I pray that we will be, someday, as amazed that we could have done this, that as a society we could have done it without a civil war, yet. We, we, we should be amazed that we could have done it, even as we are as amazed that this whole land was divided and killed 600,000 of our fellow citizens over the issue of slavery because biblically and morally we knew it was right and permissible and today uniformly with teeny little exceptions everybody says how could they believe that owning a person because of the color of their skin this issue is just as clear and we are just as blind There's a little difference in the comparison. There's a difference bunch. Here's one. The babies can't run. They can't run. The underground railroad for the babies is totally dependent on you, the abolitionists. They can't run. The slaves at least could try. The strength to stand up now. We sang, go. The strength to stand up um, will come not from seeing the horrors of abortion in the end, but from seeing the wonder of grace, amazing grace. So look at verse 44 and 45 as we close. Nevertheless, hear the force of that. Everything I've just described about the the horrors of child sacrifice and the horrors of abortion gets this big nevertheless. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He relented in his judgment, that is, he forgave them according to the abundance of his steadfast love. God's love trumped his anger. That's the meaning of Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of Jesus Christ. God's love inserts his son between us and his anger. So I'm praying, and I hope you will pray, that the horrors of abortion 
and the glory of God's grace will move us to take the challenge of prayer here on the back of the worship folder. So pick out a day, Sunday, and and devote three minutes maybe on that day to praying as God leads you in regard to... And then at the bottom there, we gave... I asked that this be put here. Amnion Crisis Pregnancy Center down south, all you south folks, that's your focus. And the New Life Family Services, nearest ones over here on the university campus, they're just moving into their new digs now. To call up those numbers and say, what kind of volunteer help do you need? I'll I'll put some of that on the web as well so that you'll know what they need because they wrote us and told us what would be helpful. So I pray that God will make us a a pro-life church that is mainly concerned with people's eternal life. That's the biggest meaning of pro-life because what good does it do if you spare people here and don't help them live forever? And that we would care very much about helping those in crisis pregnancy and helping the little ones. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words, words like demons and blood and whore and abhor and sacrifice, which makes the following nevertheless he relented according to his abundant love. Amazing. And I just want to publicly thank you for myself and on behalf of all my fellow sinners in these rooms. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the blood of Christ that forgives the shedding of blood. And thank you for the hope of a life engaged in righteousness and justice and peace now and joy and praise and fruitful labors in the kingdom of God forever and ever. Amen.